This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. For the church, the skies are growing dark in the West, but the sky is not falling in. In fact, this is a great time to be a Christian. I know that it may not look like that. From terrorist attacks to racial injustice to political chaos to an increasingly secular world that seems to have lost its moral center, we find ourselves in some unique and challenging times. Fear runs rampant across our cultural landscape, and especially, and increasingly, fear sits in the pews of our churches. Talk to most Christians or read most Christian blogs and social media streams, and it's clear that the church isn't what it was, or rather, it isn't where it was. What do I mean? Bernie Sanders will explain for me. In spring 2017, the Vermont senator, who came closer than anyone expected to winning the Democratic nomination for U.S. president in 2016, discovered that Russell Vogt, deputy director of the Office of Management and Budget, holds to the Orthodox Christian belief on salvation, and that, therefore, he believes that Muslims are, quote, condemned. Here is what Sanders said in Vogt's Senate confirmation hearing. It is hateful. It is Islamophobic. And it is an insult to over a billion Muslims throughout the world. This country since its inception has struggled, sometimes with great pain, to overcome discrimination of all forms. We must not go backwards. Welcome to the age of unbelief. Unless you want to place your head in the sand and leave it there, there's no denying the fact that fewer and fewer people are claiming to be Christians throughout the West and that Christians are losing social status in favor more and more almost by the day. For those in the United States, we're seeing Christian America pass away right before our eyes. Our one nation under God doesn't look and feel the same way anymore. Many European nations are way downstream from there. It is the end of the age of Christendom. Whether it's legislation around issues such as gay marriage and transgender identities, or the debate around what religious liberty really is and whether it even matters, or the popularity of the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Carl Sagan, or just the way our neighbors and co-workers look at us, even if we mention that we agree with what Christ said about salvation, relationships, or truth, we're in a new era. It was one thing to move toward a pluralistic society where we lived among those who looked and thought different than, differently than us and who believed differently than us on some of our close-held beliefs. Now, that's not good enough. We're currently experiencing the intolerance of intolerance. Hopefully you catch the hypocrisy in that. Christians with traditional convictions and understandings of sexuality and marriage are seen as bigots. Churches are being viewed as hate groups. Our beliefs are, Bernie says and millions of others think, hateful. Our positions are, Bernie says and millions of others think, backwards. Welcome to the age of unbelief. What are we going to do in it? I believe we can thrive. Really. That was an excerpt from uh, the introduction to Take Heart, Christian Courage in the Age of Unbelief, which was just released this week. So if you're listening to this on time, it was just released this week. And that was written by Matt Chandler, who's the lead teaching pastor over at the Village Church down in Dallas. And so um, this podcast today is going to be a review of that book. So first of all, I'd just like to really thank the Village Church and their team for sending me an advanced copy of this book. I was able to read it a couple of months ago to kind of formulate my thoughts on it and uh, get a really good idea as to what I think this could do for, for my audience and for people that look at Undaunted Life or in men's ministry. And so that was just a really, really nice thing of them to do to send that in my direction. I really enjoyed getting to read an advanced copy. Now, obviously, if, if you've been following me or have been following this ministry for any length of time, you know that we have like a super 
like massive theological man crush on Matt Chandler. Like we just love him here at Undaunted Life. We just, we love what, what he's about. We love what he stands for. We love the fire that he preaches with. Uh, we love how he speaks about truth, even in the face of just this kind of the moral pluralistic kind of ridiculous, even countercultural Christian culture that we see where everything's just kind of up in the air and you can just believe whatever you want. We like that Matt Chandler kind of sticks it out and stays true. And I mean, if you know Matt Chandler's story, the guy should be dead. He should have died of brain cancer years ago. And so it's almost as if this guy has a new lease on life and he preaches every single week, like it's his last sermon. And I know a lot of people kind of say that about different people like, Oh, he's playing this like it's his last game. And she's doing this like it's her last time ever in the boardroom. Like, but, but I really mean it. And if you've been listening to his sermons for any length of time, or especially for years and years as I have, you'll, you'll know that to be true. But uh, this book goes into a lot of different directions. I mean, really, even in the very beginning of the book, you're going to look at stats about the decline of Christianity in the West, uh, the decline of Christian thinking in America overall. Um, And so it really is going to go into a lot of these areas, but it's going to be a very, very hopeful read for most of us. So, I mean, first of all, if, if you can see the cover, which, you know, we'll include a link to the Amazon link, the cover is super dope. We love the cover. Obviously, we love lions here at Undaunted Life. We like to focus on the Lion of Judah, so the fact that there's a lion on the cover, it's as if it was written for us only, which was amazing. But what is this book about? Um, and I could have gone into my, my own little synopsis and, and I'll kind of do a little bit of that later, but I'm just going to read directly from the Amazon description because I think this is a very apt and obviously a very appropriate description. So here's what it reads on Amazon. Christianism is dead, and that's a good thing. The Christian culture that has underpinned Western society for centuries has been eroded. We're now at the point where to disagree with people on issues such as marriage and sexuality is seen as hateful. Christians are no longer seen as honorable, but as bigots. But history testifies that the more people try to destroy Christianity, the more it grows. So we are entering an exciting period of time because we're back in the place where Christ's church can survive and thrive at the margins of society. In this stirring, passionate book, Matt Chandler shows us we need Christian courage like never before and how to live with compassion and conviction, able to look around positively and reach out confidently. It encourages us not to be thwarted by fear, but to depend on God and have confidence that Christ will build his church despite continual marginalization. A must read for any Christian who wants to understand how to stand firm and walk forwards in an increasingly secular culture. Okay, so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to review this book and some of my major takeaways from this and really summarize some of the content without giving too much away. So um, if, if you've read this, if you've read the book already by the time that you've heard this podcast, you're going to know that I'm going to go over a lot of different things, but I'm leaving out a lot of the meat of the book because I want you to experience that in the narrative way that Matt Chandler puts it out there. Okay, so um Let's just go ahead and launch into this, okay? The the beginning of the book kind of goes into a discussion of the plight of Christianity and Christian thinking in the modern West. Because, And I think that's an important distinction because we think of, oh, Christianity's on the decline, it's being attacked, but really it's Christian thinking as well. It's like Christianity as a worldview. So um, all of us tend to respond to the plight a little differently. Um, and Chandler did a really, really great job of putting our different responses into these four categories. So we're seeing this this anti-Christian nature going on. How do we respond to it? So here are the four approaches that he threw out there. The first one is the converting culture approach. The converting 
culture approach. So in this approach, um, you want to make sure that culture reflects Christian and or biblical principles and values. That, that's what you want to make sure it happens. So um, think, you know, the modern Christian right politically. So, you know, different politicians that you've identified with that would even call themselves Christian right. That's kind of where this approach comes from. So this could lead to some unholy alliances with groups that we don't necessarily want to align with. And I think that goes really well with a quote from this section. And here's the quote. And yes, Christians are called to seek the good of those around us and to pursue justice and to love good and shun evil. But we get into trouble when we confuse the earthly city with the heavenly city. Until Christ returns, this world will never look as it should. You can't use politics to build the new Jerusalem, and you can't legislate people into the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's the converting culture approach. The second approach he talks about is the condemning culture approach. You'll probably be very familiar with this one. So basically, um, we are going to remove ourselves from culture. As Christians, we're just going to be outside of culture. So we're going to get up on our high horse. We're going to point down at all the sinners and all the crazy folk, and we're just going to condemn them from our perch on high. That's kind of what we're going to do. So uh, the Anabaptist movement, uh, some of you may have heard of the Anabaptist movement. That has a lot of this condemning culture approach. Uh, There was a very popular book that came out called The Benedict Option, and it uses this approach. It basically calls it a strategic retreat. Um, And so uh, Chandler doesn't really dig this option very much. I think you can see for some obvious reasons in here's a quote from this section talking about the condemning culture approach. So here we go. My concern is that by itself, I just don't think the idea is all that biblical. We are to be the salt of the earth, as we see in Matthew 5 verse 13. And salt maintains its flavor while it is rubbed into the food it is being used to preserve. Not only that, salt spreads its flavor too. There comes a point where we have to actually get our hands dirty and show and share the good news of Christ, and proximity and relationships are essential to making that work. It requires involvement in the local community and in the public square. If God's Old Testament people could have called to seek the welfare of the city of Babylon during their exile from the homeland in Jeremiah 29.7, then we should be seeking the welfare of others too. After all, however ungodly your context, you are not in Babylon. Okay, so that, that's a really good summation of the condemning culture approach and some of the issues that you might have with that. So let's move on to the third approach. That's the consume culture approach. Okay, so this one is the most personally frustrating for me, especially inside the church. And you've heard me talk about this in other podcasts, and we'll certainly talk about that throughout future episodes. But basically, it's this idea that in order to stay relevant, yeah, I'm using air quotes right now to stay relevant, we have to look like the rest of culture essentially do what they do, act how they act, you know, to a degree, right? Uh, this approach tends to begin with good intentions, but it, it can so easily fall off the rails, right? And uh, here's a quote from this section of the book that I think sums it up very nicely, okay? But the problem comes when we start to put too great a focus on culture to the neglect of the gospel, and that even goes for social justice. What happens is that we start to want the implications of the gospel more than we want the actual gospel, Those who take the consuming culture approach follow culture, first and foremost, before the Bible, neglecting and compromising on significant aspects of faith. These men and women begin to look more and more like the world and less and less like the church. When the voice of a culture and not the word of Christ is what governs the church, then it is no longer the church. It is just a social club of people desperately trying to keep up with the cultural fashion. Ironically, that's the quickest way to close your church. Why would anyone bother coming to a church that is indistinguishable from anything else? 
I think that is such a fantastic point. Like he points out accurately that these first three approaches are all born out of fear, right? So if you're using the consume culture approach, the condemn culture approach, or the convert culture approach, those are all things that you're doing out of fear. That's how you're operating, right? And so uh, there's a fourth approach and that is the one that we need to take. And that's really what the whole of the book is about. And that's the courageous approach, okay? So the entirety of the book goes into a lot of different detail and spells out a lot of different ways that we can operate that kind of keep us out of those first three approaches because it's really the courageous approach which is going to have the most positive in terms of outcomes. Because like I said, on on those other three, um, those are things that can have positive outcomes, but they are not wholly positive, W-H-O-L-L-Y, positive. They're just not wholly positive, whereas the courageous approach has the most positivity possible throughout it. Okay. Um, and one of the things that he does early in the book that I think is very, very important for us is he takes a look at Christendom. Okay. And even saying we're living in the twilight of that period. Right. Um, and so this is basically Christianity being at the forefront of culture. That's what Christendom is. Right. And we've all kind of lived in different points like this. So, you know, I'm a younger guy, but, um, for even some of you folks that are a little bit older listening to this podcast, you have experienced times where Christianity was really at the forefront of culture, that our politics was downstream of Christian Judeo Christian thought. You know what I mean? Um, but you got to really look at it this way. The first thousand years of Christian history was crazy. You've heard me talk about the book Tried by Fire a lot, but in a thousand years, it was just an unconceivable way that Christianity grew because we were basically going from every conceivable world power was trying to stamp out Christianity, especially the Roman Empire. And then we became the most widely accepted religion on the planet in a relatively short period of time. Like that's, that's pretty incredible. That speaks to the the truth of the gospel and to the gospel accounts that we see in the new Testament. Um, but there were a lot of changes that happened in the church because of Christendom, because Christianity did have such a high status in most people's brains. And so, uh, Matt Chandler actually goes into detail on four of the ways that the church has changed. So I'm going to go over those right now. But one of the first ways that the church changed was, uh, as Christendom formed, uh, you begin began to get what was considered to be a uh, Christian civilization, uh, for, for lack of a better way to put it. So it was essentially binary. It was basically Christendom versus, you know, the heathens and the barbarians. That's how he puts it in the book. Um, and so basically your faith and how you set up your life had largely to do with where you were born, right? If you were born in a Christian nation, a Christian civilization, well, then you were just a Christian, almost by writ of birth, right? But if you were born in a place that did not look at Christianity in the same way, that did not have a Christian culture, you were seen as outside of that, right? You were, you were a heathen or a barbarian. The second way that it changed the church is the church moved kind of from the margins of society and became basically the center of political and cultural power. So this is really a far cry from what we saw in the early Roman Empire, just because a lot of things in that time, you know, we, we learn a lot about the, the martyrs and so how, how they were physically tortured and the ways that they were destroyed and, and martyred. But that wasn't the only way that they were maligned. A lot of these early Christians were just basically kept out of the public square. They were being, you know, there was prejudice against them in terms of hiring, in terms of business dealings. They were just kind of seen as outside of the culture, right? But, you know, now the church has kind of moved from away from that to being at the center of all these decisions that are happening. 
The third way that the church changed was that uh, Sunday became an official day of rest and that church going was at the very least socially mandatory. And so now when you see children, they may not understand what that socially mandatory thing means in terms of church. But I know in my parents' generation, especially living in Oklahoma, growing up in Oklahoma, that was just something you did. You went to church right? It didn't matter if you believed. It didn't matter if you got anything out of it. Uh, you just went because that's the thing that you needed to do. If you ran a business, you were not open on Sunday. Like that is just not something that you saw. It was just very, it was seen as a very sacrilegious type of a thing and anti-cultural at the time. And the fourth way you saw the church change was Christendom changed the way churches worked. So if you think about it this way, and we've talked about back on the, the fourth podcast, kind of how men have left the church and why and those different things. But part of that is now we have large groups of professional Christians, I guess would be the best way to look at it. So these are, are your pastors or your people that, that work for a church or something like that. They are professional Christians. And that was something that would kind of be considered ridiculous. If you, if you talk to people that were from the first few centuries, it would be ridiculous for them to think that, oh, there are people that just get paid to do this. So I don't need to share the gospel with people because there are people that do this for a living. It's kind of an interesting thing. But he goes from Christendom and kind of what that's done and how that's kind of gone through history and what it's done to modern Christianity and the modern church. And then he talks about how the Enlightenment really began to disrupt Christendom, okay? So uh, the Enlightenment happened during the 18th century, and it was basically a movement started by, by philosophers and these free thinkers. And essentially, this is really distilling it down, and it's oversimplifying it, but I'm doing that on purpose. Man kind of became the center of the universe, like the individual person was the center of the universe. And so I'm going to read a, a section from the book where he, he goes into talking about the Enlightenment. So here we go. Given its emphasis on man as the center of life, the Enlightenment was the source of modern-day individualism, materialism, and consumerism. Each of these not only led people away from the church, but they also greatly influenced the church, both in the way people understand it and the way it operates. Basically, we began to see church from a consumerist point as a place that exists to help us to serve us and to meet our needs, not as a place in which to be the body of Christ or to worship God. So rather than the church being something we give our lives to, it became another option on the great and ever-growing menu of life and leisure choices. Maybe we do it, maybe we don't. Devotion to the gathering of God's people and the worship of God's name became an add-on to the rest of life. And unfortunately, churches have fed into this consumeristic, individualistic model of faith. Sermon series and books seem to be less about the character and nature of God and, well, the actual Bible, and more about the ways that we can improve or better our lives. There's been a shift from orienting our lives around God and His story by orienting God around our life stories. It's what Christian Smith dubbed moralistic therapeutic deism. It is religion of trying to be, a good, to be good people so that we can feel good about ourselves. And God's name is mentioned here and there, and he's really somewhere in the distance. What ends up happening is that the local church enters a competitive marketplace against other churches. Rather than being on mission and longing to see people come to know Christ, we just reshuffle the deck of Christians in a given city. These things just get out of hand, and our churches start to look more and more like the world and less and less like Christ. It's getting to the point where you show up, push a button on your chair, and someone brings you a mocha to drink. Then at the end of the performance, because that's what it is, you basically pick up your kids at main event. I'm exaggerating, of course, but not much. I think this is a very important part of the book here, and you, you talk about... Um, 
what you see in the modern day church, and you've heard me say it a bunch, it's these TED Talks with Bible verses. That's what we're getting now. And again, I don't mean to sound like an old cur- curmudgeon that's like, ah, we need to go back to the way it was. What's with all this dang rock music? Like, it's not one of those types of things. But um, it's enlightened thought from the enlightenment that has basically caused what we're seeing now. And then, yes, the the church landscape has become a marketplace, and I'm not immune to it either. I mean, you go to a church, and then all of a sudden, a church, you know, stops meeting your needs, right? Have you ever heard someone say that, or even yourself say that? Oh, it's just not really meeting my needs right now, and I wish the music was better, and I wish the sermon content was better. Like, I've heard myself say all those things. That's been created by a little bit by Christendom being kind of taken down piece by piece via the Enlightenment, and it's caused churches to move in that direction. Um, and so the interesting thing that he talks about in the book is that Christianity is now going back to the margins of society. It spent literally centuries as kind of being the forefront, the central hinge point for a lot of people, a lot of decision making, a lot of legislative ventures. But now it's moving back to the margins. And one of the first examples that he looked at was a story about Chick-fil-A. So um, there was an interview that the current CEO and the son of the founder of Chick-fil-A, Dan Cathy, there was an interview that he did uh, with a Christian publication. It was like a Christian magazine. And he was asked about his business model, and this was his response. This is Dan Cathy again, the CEO of Chick-fil-A. We are very much supportive of the family, the biblical definition of the family unit. We are a family-owned business, a family-led business, and we are married to our first wives. We give God thanks for that. We know it might not be popular with everyone, but thank the Lord we live in a country where we can share our values and operate on biblical principles." Not a, not a whole lot going on right there, right? Again, this is a Christian that's being interviewed by a Christian for a Christian magazine, and none of that seems outside of the realm of acceptable doctrine, right? I mean, th- this is really, <laughs> it's not that crazy of a statement. Like, this is not some sort of insane thing. But this this went around, and it made the rounds in all, all these different media venues, and it was seen as an outrageous thing for a modern human to say. Like, what does he mean we're talking about being married to our first wives? And what is what does he mean by the biblical definition of the family unit? And obviously, you're seen as a bigot, you're seeing it as all these different things. And so, kind of, you know, what, even in hindsight, I bet Dan Cathy wouldn't have done this. He had a follow-up interview. And uh, even in the book, Matt Chandler says, probably not the best best thing for you to do. Never do a follow-up interview. Try to maybe do something else. But he was asked about his views on marriage. So obviously this was, you know, diving down a little bit deeper. And this is what Dan Cathy had to say about that. I think we are inviting God's judgment on our nation when we shake our fist at him and say, we know better than you as to what constitutes a marriage. I pray God's mercy on our generation that has such a prideful, arrogant attitude to think that we have the audacity to define what marriage is all about. There was extreme outrage to this. Okay. I can almost see uh, where the outrage would come on this one. I can almost see it. It makes a little bit more sense, but still, if you're looking at it through the Christian lens and the Christian worldview, this is not beyond the pale like at all. This one doesn't even register. Um, And this led to a lot of virtue signaling, which we talked about in the last podcast, but virtue signaling uh, by politicians and by cities saying, you know, we're not going to let you be a part of our city. Your values are not our values. And and all these companies were kind of basically, look at us. We're so woke. We're so awesome. Uh, We're going to be anti-chicken sandwiches. And so what's funny about this story, I guess it's not really funny is it actually affected me directly. Um, back in 2012, that's kind of when this, this story broke. I was working for Major League Baseball at the time, 
And um, whenever I was in college in different times, I worked with a company locally here in Edmond, Oklahoma, and they did a lot with the Chick-fil-A uh, company and with Dan Cathy and with their foundation and all those different things. And so I kind of had an idea of who Dan Cathy was as a man, right? Not just as a business owner and someone who's the CEO of a very large corporation, but, you know, it was just an interesting thing because I felt like I got to know this guy's heart. And so there was a day, and I'm trying to remember all the details, but there was basically a day where uh, people were going to be boycotting Chick-fil-A, right? There were uh, same-sex couples that were going up to the register and just basically making out at the register. They weren't even ordering or anything like that. They were picketing outside and basically just trying to disrupt business. And so people that were in support of Chick-fil-A, so a lot of Christians or people that were more more so on the right politically, they were going to be, it was like national buy a chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A day. Like that's kind of what it ended up being. And so I'm, I'm woke up that morning and a lot of what I did in my job had to do with Twitter and social media. And so I saw kind of this outrage and I didn't really look very far into it, like where it came from and what everyone was saying. I just saw that there were two people on the issues in, in my head. I'm thinking, so today in this country, buying a chicken sandwich and, or not buying a chicken sandwich is some big, like political statement. And I thought about how ridiculous that was. And so I tweeted something along the lines of, well, I guess this is where we're living now. So everybody enjoy your chicken sandwiches today. Like let's, let's go support Chick-fil-A. It was something like that. Um, and the, the pushback and, and really the, the, the negativity that I got for major league baseball for putting that tweet out there was, was fairly substantial. There was like an entire group of people that were part of the marketing team that kind of stopped me and talked to me about, you know, do you know the ramifications of what you said and gosh, uh, how that could be seen as offensive. And, uh, we know it's your own Twitter account, but you are representing major league baseball right now. And I was just sitting there almost like, what, what are they talking about? Like, this is ridiculous. Now I did not realize that, uh, one of the C-suite executives for Chick-fil-A, I think he died of a heart attack. I think it was the guy who was handling the PR of the issue. I didn't, I didn't know that. Not that that necessarily would have changed what, what I put out there, but it was just so interesting that I had to answer to all these people that, you know, uh, more so aligned with the atheist left. That's who, who these people I was working with is what they were talking about. And basically the idea that I would even hint at the fact that I supported the biblical definition of what a family is and what a marriage is was seen as abhorrent, like absolutely outside of culture and completely unacceptable. So it wasn't like this massive reprimand. I didn't have to take it down. I didn't have to issue an apology or anything like that, but it was almost like they were just, you know, trying to school this, this poor little Oklahoman uh, Christian and kind of bring him up to speed about how they do things in the Northeast. It was, it was a very condescending thing at the time. I was kind of confused by the whole thing, but now when I'm looking back on it, you know, several years later, it was just like, what a stupid thing. What a stupid thing to even have to sit through, uh, when people say things like that. But that's one example of what we're seeing across the globe. And that's such a small example, but that's just one personally from my own life. And I'm sure you guys have your own stories. And I'm actually you know, interested to hear your stories. If you have something like that, where you feel as if you've been maligned by modern culture, go and shoot me an email, info at undaunted.life. Again, info at undaunted.life. I'd like to hear your story and uh, you know, commiserate with you or at least understand what's going on around us. But uh, the thing about it is, all the things that I've talked about up to this point. So we've got the enlightenment and we've got everything that's happened with Christendom, the rise of which, and what we're seeing now in the fall, because of all this, we pretty much get to the entire point of the book, the entire reason why Matt Chandler has written this book. And there are three things that he writes. This is towards the middle of the book that I think sums up where the book is going and why people should read it. And the first is that the church thrives on the margins. 
The church thrives on the margins, okay? So if you think back to the first several centuries of the Christian church, which again, if Jesus didn't exist, which we talked about on a, on a past podcast and different things like that, uh, it, there was no reason to believe that this could be a thing that would have survived. There's, there's no reason to accept that there would have been so many people that were converting to this. And when Christianity was on the margins, it was healthy, it was very, very healthy. It was very gospel-centered and gospel-driven, okay? And the second reason that uh, we can, we, we are looking at this book and looking at it as a prescriptive way for us to live, essentially, is that it gives us a perspective required to see that Christendom was essentially a mirage. It's such an interesting point. I've never really heard it put that way. But Christendom was a mirage. Like, this idea that somehow we had control over culture, that we had control over the world, that somehow, I mean, it's kind of ridiculous even to say it, that, that we didn't really need to depend on the triune God, that we didn't need to depend on that to affect culture. I mean, because whenever Christianity is at the center of everyone's mind and at the center of legislation and of politics and of culture, you don't really feel the need to, to ask the Holy Spirit to intercede for you, right? It's kind of one of those types of things. But it's great that we've seen the mirage kind of break down right now, that it's like, look, it looked like Christian Christians were in control, looked like Christianity was dominating culture, but that was never really the case. And the third thing we look out here is, and this is Matt Chandler saying this, but he says, I don't mourn the passing of Christendom because I think a lot of people claim to be Christians who aren't Christians. And if you listen to Matt Chandler's sermons, which I would highly, highly, highly suggest that you do that, I listen to the Village Church podcast every week. Um, he talks about this from time to time, about uh, he you know, operating in Dallas. There's kind of this nominal Christianity where you're a Christian in name only, right? So someone asks you, hey, are you a believer? You just say yes instinctively because you were born in Texas or because you were born in Oklahoma or, or something like that. Or oh, I went to a Baptist church as a little kid with my family. And so... What, what you get is when Christianity is at the center of things and when it's the dominant ideology and the dominant party, if you look at it politically, right? When it's the dominant type of thing, you just kind of say, yeah, I, I check that box. Like, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, I'll call myself a Christian without any true understanding about what being a Christian is and what the gospel even means. And so I think that's very important for us to think about is when we're looking at the, the points of this book and when we're looking at where we're at currently in Christianity, we have to be realistic about where we're at. Okay, so I'm going to read a quote here actually from chapter three, and this is a quote about courage, because again, you know, I talked about this when I talked in, in the virtue signaling podcast, which wasn't one podcast ago, it was two podcasts ago, but in the virtue signaling podcast, you know, when you're at the Academy Awards and you're sitting in a room full of a bunch of people that already think the way that you do, you are not courageous for saying things that they agree with, Right. So if you're sitting there uh, with a bunch of pro-abortion people and you say something that is very pro-abortion, that does not make you courageous. It makes you normal. It, like there's nothing courageous about doing something like that. And so I think it's important for us to look at cur courage in the right way, especially since that's one of the central themes of this book. So there's a quote in chapter three by James Neal Hollingworth, and it's this. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than one's fear. I'll read that again, okay? Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment of something else is more important than one's fear, right? We have to put our current circumstances in the right mind frame. Like, we have to be logical. We have to be balanced, okay? There, there's so much in modern culture that we've confused what courage actually is, right? I think most people would see, you know, a police officer 
you know, uh, jumping, you know, guarding someone with their body to, to protect them from bullets is courageous. Firefighter running into a burning building to, to go and grab children and get them out of there to get them to safety. You know, soldiers going into the, in, into war, basically running towards the sound of bullets. We see those things as courageous, right? But we have to look at it through the context of what we're doing as modern Christians and are we operating in a courageous way? Um, and that leads to a major point for us in chapter four. And like, guys, this is like the most undaunted life point in this book. Like, it's just an incredible, incredible part of this book. And we just could not agree with it more. So I'm going to go ahead and read the quote here. Yet it's an attribute that when we know it, consider it and believe it will give us courage in this age of unbelief. It is the understanding that God is a warrior this attribute of God has almost completely vanished today. When did you last hear a sermon on the warrior nature of our God? When we think about God, we tend to think about Nickelodeon, not HBO, about Disney, not Dunkirk. Without realizing it, we can end up with a Tinkerbell Jesus who has a bag of pixie dust and all he does is sprinkle us with blessings. He never gets upset about anything. You can't do anything wrong. His sprinkle dust is there to help us understand that, yes, you really are amazing. Now, don't get me wrong. You cannot think too much about or appreciate too deeply the grace, mercy, long-suffering, patience, and kindness of the triune God. We must never neglect those attributes of God. God is not only a warrior, and this is only one way of thinking and speaking about him. Of course, he's more than a warrior, but he's not less. Make no mistake, the Bible does paint God as a warrior. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name from Exodus 15, verse 3. That is what makes this God so terrifying. Is he loving? Yes. Gracious? Yes. Merciful? Yes. Long-suffering? Absolutely. Tinkerbell? Not at all. Not at all. He is a warrior, and he fights for his people, and he wins. That is worth the book, guys. That is little group of quotes alone. That is worth the price of admission, especially for us here at Undaunted Life. This stuff is why we love Chandler so much. Like he brings it and he just brings the truth no matter how counter it is to you, no matter how it strikes you. Again, there is so much focus on the Lamb of God and there's almost no mention of the Lion of Judah. We talk about this all the time. We are not saying that the Lamb of God is a bad thing to talk about. The reason why Undaunted Life is here is because there's almost no mention of the Lamb of God. There's no mention of the warrior side of our Jesus, right? Again, I love the quote, he's more than a warrior, but he's not less. Stop trying to pussify Jesus. Like that's not the way we need to understand our Savior. He is not less than a warrior. There's this idea that, what, you're just kind of a Neanderthal if you look at the warrior way too much. Like, it's ridiculous. And I, and I love at the end of this quote, and he wins. He is a warrior and he fights for his people and he wins. In modern culture in 2018, winning is almost seen as a negative right? As this negative in modern society, like we shouldn't even try to win, right? So capitalism, it's about e uh, winning. So like capitalism is evil. You know, uh, what if our child loses? If we put them into a sport, what are we going to do? So what, what are we going to do? We're going to make sure they don't keep score at the flag football game. You know, what if someone's left out? You know, we're not going to have the kids pick teams because that's going to make the person that's picked last feel bad. Well, yeah, that's kind of the point. 
Like, but there, there's just this idea that we can't even look at somebody that could win something, but that's what Jesus is. Jesus is a winner. Like he wins in the end, the triune God, it, it triumphs over evil. That that's what we're living in. That's the story. That's the narrative that we're living in right now. And I just love the way that Matt Chandler pointed it out. It doesn't take some sort of deep exegetical knowledge of the scriptures to understand what he's saying is absolutely true. Again, I like how he says it, Tinkerbell Jesus. That's hilarious. I normally say boyfriend Jesus. So I might have to steal that from him, but that's what we think about Jesus now. He's Tinkerbell. He's like a genie, right? We just, you know, rub the bottle or rub the lamp and then he's just going to pop out. All right, what do you need? Like here, I'm your Jesus. I'm here for you. And if you're just like, oh, I just need, I just need to cuddle right now. I just need you to help me. I just need you to protect me. It's just like, can we, can we depend on the warrior Jesus a little bit too? Can we even just talk about him again? We're going to talk about him and we would encourage all of you to do the same. We would encourage you to talk to your pastors about talking about those things. I, I say these things always to challenge you guys. Why do you only hear about the lamb of God in the modern day church? Where's the lion of Judah? I love that Matt Chandler goes into this. Okay. And now we have to look at, um, going further into the book, it's the reality of how this plays out in culture. Okay. So there's a quote in there from a British pastor and evangelist named, uh, named Rico Tice. And here's the quote. There is increasingly increasing hostility to the gospel message, but there is something else going on too. There is also increased hunger. The same rising tide of secularism and materialism that rejects truth claims and is offended by absolute moral standards is proving to be an empty and hollow way to live. You're more and more likely to find people quietly hungering for the content of the gospel, even as our culture teaches them to be hostile towards it. That is such an important line. That last line right there, I'll reread it. Even as our culture teaches them to be hostile towards it. That is the reality of where we're living, guys. Your head is in the sand if you think anything differently, okay? For those of you listening that have children that are in school, what is it that you think the teachers are telling them? Now, you, they, you may be homeschooling them, maybe they're in a private school or something like that, but a lot of these teachers seem to align the same politically. A lot of these teachers' unions seem to have a particular worldview that they want to be espoused within those classrooms, right? Our culture is teaching our children to be hostile, hostile towards the reality of the gospel, right? It's pushing them towards pluralism. It's pushing them towards secularism and materialism and narcissism and all those different things. And we have to be able to stand in the opposite direction. Okay. I mean, the gospel itself was always going to rub people the wrong way. Like, because it draws a line in the sand, right? And lines in the sand, especially now, are very, very uncomfortable. Everybody wants a squiggly line, but it only squiggles when they want it to squiggle and they want to erase parts of the line as well, right? And the more pluralistically, uh, pluralistic we think and the more pluralistic we go, the rougher the gospel will feel to people. But it doesn't actually make the gospel any rougher, right? It's good news, after all. That's what the, the word means. But the gospel will feel rougher, but it's the same gospel. We don't need to change it. Like if you go back to some of the approaches we talked about earlier, this idea that we have to change the gospel so it's uh, more efficient or that it's communicated better so that people accept it more. We kind of like don't talk about certain parts of the Bible. We talk about others. Like th there's no reason to display the gospel in any other form or fashion than how it's currently being displayed. Like that's it. And so um, there is an increased hunger for things that kind of buck modern culture. 
And you know, here we're, we're also big fans of Jordan Peterson here at Undaunted Life. And I just recently was listening to an interview that he did and it was very important because he was kind of talking about something very similar to this. So I'm going to actually read a quote here from that interview. You see, because I see the same thing when I'm talking, my audiences are often composed mostly of men between say 20 and 35, not exactly young, but young enough. And they're desperate for a discussion about responsibility and fair play and noble being and working properly in the world and to hear the idea that their lives actually matter, that if they straighten themselves up and fly right, that they'll have a beneficial effect on themselves and their family and the community and that the world is starving for that. And then through them as individuals, not for them as a group, but for each of them as individuals. Yeah, it breaks me up. Every time the topic comes up, it breaks me up because it's so damn sad. We're so stupid. We're alienating young men. We're telling them that they're patriarchal oppressors and denizens of rape culture and tyrants in waiting and that we fail to discriminate between their competence and their tyranny. And it's just awful. It's so destructive. It's so unnecessary. And it's so sad. What's important about that quote by uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson is that he's having a lot of men in his audience that are wanting to be talked to about, about how to be a good noble man about how to take responsibility. All these things we've basically been told that modern boys don't want, right? We've been told that these modern boys and these teenagers and these, and these young men, that they don't want to be responsible. They just want to play video games. Well, not necessarily. It's, that's what they're defaulting to. Because, you know, for a lot of guys, and you know this to be true about yourself, it's certainly true about me. If there's not a great chance that I'm going to win at something, I'm probably not going to do it, Right? I mean, in, in, to a degree, right? So if there's a sport that's just, you're absolutely awful at, and it's not important to you to get better at that, you're probably just not going to play. That's that whole concept of, oh, I'm going to take my ball and go home type of thing. I mean, it's that same type of an idea. So if guys are constantly told that they're awful, that they're, you know, perpetuating rape culture and that they're a part of the patriarchy that is destroying Western society and all these different things, where do you think they're going to retreat to? They're going to retreat to places where they're in complete control. They're in complete control of their world when they're playing Madden, when they're playing Call of Duty, when they're playing World of Warcraft. They're in complete control of that, right? They're in complete control of their fantasy football roster, their fantasy baseball roster. They're completely in control of that. They can make trades. They can drop players. They can you know, change their lineup however they want. So they retreat to the places where they have control. How about pornography? They retreat into pornography, right? Because they can control what happens there. Because if they're done looking at a woman performing an act, they go to the next one. And the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one, until they decide they want to ejaculate, right? Like, that that's where they have control. So we're constantly going to be seeing men moving towards those sides of things where they are in complete control. And I'm going to bring it back around to the original point here, which is there's the reality of how this is going to play out in culture for us. You know, it takes courage in the modern culture to express yourself and express the gospel as a part of who you are as a person. And for a man... That's what's going to actually take courage to be able to stand up and do those types of things. And this book ends with, you know, how we can be courageous and it encourages us by demonstrably stating that we, all of us were made for right now. Like this was not an accident. So for all of you listening to this podcast right now, it's not an accident that you're alive in 2018 that you weren't born a thousand years ago or a thousand years from now or somewhere in between. Like there's a reason for you being here right now. Okay. We were made to operate in this post Christendom world, but this is my encouragement to you guys. And that's, what's encouraging about this book as well is you have to be ready for it because a lot of us are front runners. 
And some of you are even going to bucket the idea that I would bring that up. But a lot of us operate as front runners. We are very, very happy when our team is routing the other team. We get really uncomfortable when our team's getting smashed, right? You know, we, we love to be a part of a team at work that is succeeding. But if they even suggest that you would go to a weaker team that you could potentially make better, some of us, it's just in our core of our being, we don't want to do that. We're okay with being front runners. Well, guys, the days that Christianity is the front runner in society and in how people think they're done, they're finished. I'm not saying they can't come back. This isn't like a you know hellfire and brimstone type of thing, but th- those days are gone. They're just gone. Especially if you're listening to this in the United States, it's going away, especially if the United States goes the way of Europe, where everything is becoming very socialistic and very even more pluralistic than what you can imagine. And the standards go into the toilet. That's where the country continues to go as well. And so you have to be able to be ready for that. You have to prepare your heart. You have to steal your senses and you have to make sure that you can operate in that type of an environment. Okay, so as we wrap up here uh, on the review of the book, I want to give everyone listening to this podcast the three reasons why modern Christian men should read this book. Okay, and they're fairly simple and fairly straightforward. The first one is it's short. Okay, and I hate that I even have to say that, but I know my audience, guys, this book is just over 100 pages long. This is not some super voluminous thing. It's not like reading an encyclopedia. It's not like reading the Odyssey. It's very short. It's very, very readable. Okay. But also this should serve as a primer for other materials or or other things that you should be thinking deeply about. Okay. And, And one thing that I want this to lead to for you is to read another book by Matt Chandler, which is called The Explicit Gospel. So this is probably like a top five favorite book for me. So uh, obviously we put out that, that list on our website that we talk about all the time, the hundred books that every modern Christian man should read. That's in my top five on that list. Like we don't have that list, you know, set up in like a top one through 100 type of thing, but that's a top five book. That's the best book that Matt Chandler has ever written. And I'm not hating on his other books. I'm obviously reviewing one of those as we speak, but it's an incredible and incredible book. And so this book has a lot of the same qualities of that other one, but the explicit gospel gets into such a more definitive nature of how the gospel should operate in our lives. And it's completely appropriate when we're talking about how it operates in modern culture. Okay. So first reason to read this book, it's short. You can read it in like an hour, hour and a half guys. So quit belly aching, just nut up and and read it. The second is it will call out your cowardice towards modern culture. Okay. Cause we live in this culture. We, we don't really want to offend anybody and we don't want to you know put a mean comment on social media because we don't want it to be taken out of context. And, but guys, the gospel is offensive. That doesn't mean you need to be offensive while you're displaying it to somebody, but it is offensive. You are challenging people's worldviews and Satan has got most of these people by the balls. And so if you're thinking through a pluralistic, materialistic mindset, that is of the devil. It's not of God. And so the gospel is going to be contrary to that, right? It's going to be vinegar in the mouth of these people that are spewing these hatred, these hate-filled ideologies, okay? So again, the second reason you should read this book is it will call out your cowardice towards modern culture. And the final reason is it will reinforce the wholeness of the person of Jesus, the wholeness of the person of Jesus. Again, we say it all the time and we will continue to say it. He is a lamb and lion, Okay. He is caring and powerful. He is supporter and warrior. He is both. He's not 50% one, 50% the other. He is wholly both, 100% 
both. Again, just to repeat, the three reasons why you should read this book. Number one, it's short. Number two, it will call out your cowardice towards modern culture. Number three, it will reinforce the wholeness of the person of Jesus. All right, guys, before we let you go, we're going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, we are a men's ministry and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. And today it's a mental and spiritual resilience boost for you. And you know, every time we review a book, that's going to be one of the things that we suggest. So make sure you pick up a copy of Take Heart, Christian Courage in the Age of Unbelief by Matt Chandler. Um, Pick it up on Amazon. The link to that is going to be in the description pick it up at your local bookstore, do it on your e-reader, whatever you need to do. Make sure you get that. While at the same time you're buying that book, go ahead and put the explicit gospel on your list. Like I mentioned, uh, this is going to be, Take Heart is going to be a book that kind of will springboard you into other ways of thinking. You cannot go wrong by reading the explicit gospel. There's also like a, a group study that goes with that, that I've taken groups of people through before. So if you're the type of person that leads a Bible study or a Sunday school or, or a men's group, that I could not recommend recommend that content any higher than that. So that concludes our review of the book, Take Heart. And we just want to thank you so much for listening all the way to the end of the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play and refer your friends to listen. And please share this on social media. Use the hashtag UndauntedLife. We'll be sure to find the post. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one and go ahead and leave a little note when you do so. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at UndauntedLife and facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under the plans. As always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music library for our content. The intro-outro track on this podcast is their song King of Sorrow, which is off their latest record entitled Phantom Anthem. The links to all of this are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.